Welcome to today's edition of the Rush 24-7 Podcast. Greetings to you, music lovers, thrill-seekers, conversationalists all across the fruited plain. This is going to end. You realize this, folks? This coronavirus thing, like everything else, is going to end. We don't know when it's going to end, but when it does, you're going to see an economic rebound that you can't even dream of right now because you're so absorbed. No, you're not absorbed. You are immersed and surrounded by negative garbage in the news. Live from the Southern Command in sunny South Florida, it's Open Line Friday! Can you believe it? We're already at Friday. We're already at the end of the week. Fastest week in media, Rush Limbaugh behind the golden EIB microphone, our telephone number. And remember, you can talk about whatever you want to talk about on Friday. 800-282-2882, the email address, lrushbo at eibnet.us. Now, I mentioned beginning of the week on Monday that we had just made available the Ditto Cam app for Apple TV. My brother watches it and he says, you really, this is, this is fabulous. He's got a, he's got a giant, uh, I think, 85-inch TV he watches it on. Uh, but the, the Ditto Cam is now available each day and archived uh, on a Rush Limbaugh app for Apple TV. Now, it's not the whole website. It's just the Ditto Cam. There is a, there's a, a, a free section of it. There's certain videos, certain Ditto Cam videos that are free, not, not current day. Uh, if you are already a subscriber at RushLimbaugh.com, all you have to do is sign into it. If you're not a member, there's an in-app purchase. You can become a member. It's totally up to you. This might be a day that you might want to look into. You might at least, if you have an Apple TV, you might want to go to the App Store and Apple TV and maybe it's a free download. You don't have to pay anything to the in-app purchase. It's totally up to you. Uh, let's see. What else? Uh, oh, yes. the um, uh, it, It's fascinating. On, on, I've got two stacks of stuff here today. One stack is the coronavirus, and it's the end of the world stack. We're dead. It's just a matter of time. And then the Democrats win the White House. And then the other stack is all about the Democrat primary race and how they're admitting now that they're going to try to screw crazy Bernie. It's fascinating. All kinds of polling data. It's as though the Democrat primary, the Democrat presidential race is occurring outside the universe of the coronavirus. Have you noticed this? The coronavirus, the only thing it isn't affecting is the Democrats. But the coronavirus is destroying Trump. It's destroying the Trump administration. It's ending Trump rallies. It is going to end the Trump administration is going to end the Republican Party. And then over here, the Democrats are conducting business like there isn't a coronavirus. It's a most amazing thing. And I don't know how many of you have detected that yourselves as you, as consumers, uh, watch the news today. But see, that's why I'm here, because that's, that's the takeaway. I am not kidding. The Democrat stack about the Democrat primaries is unaffected. By the coronavirus. You cannot even find a story, a prominent story that relates the coronavirus or includes the coronavirus in whatever the Democrats want to do, except 
when it comes to the Democrats destroying Trump. Then you can find it. But the coronavirus stack is all about Trump and how incompetent he is and what a boob he is and how at risk he's placed all of us. Why, I had it yesterday, I didn't get to it. The, uh, the New York Times, Gail Collins, who's one of the, uh, the, the op-ed, one of the op-ed editors, had a piece yesterday said, let's just call it what it is. Let's just call it Trump virus. It's the Trump virus. And, of course, that's not discriminatory. Why? That's not mean-spirited. That's not bigoted. That's not biased. That's just what it is. So it's, uh, it's going to be fascinating today to talk about all these things. And yet everything involving the Democrats is amazingly unaffected by the coronavirus. You can't find a story on the, on the coronavirus affecting turnout Saturday in the South Carolina primary. You can't find a story on what's the impact of Super Tuesday by the coronavirus. I had a friend of mine send me a note today. This guy's a stock market guy. This guy buys and sells stock. That's, that's his job. I mean, that's how he earns his money. It's not his job. He's self-employed. That's how he earns a living. He buys and sells stocks. So, of course, he's completely immersed in the stock market. And he knows all the lingo. He sends me emails assuming I know the lingo. I write him back, Bobby, you're talking Greek to me. I don't know what you're just, – just, can you just tell me what, what you think without going through all the insider lingo? He can't do it. He's so immersed in it he can only speak inside. But he sends me this note today. Hey, Rush. This could be the biggest election tampering event in history. He's talking about the coronavirus. If this thing stays on this psychological course, how long do you think it's going to be before they start saying Trump cannot do any campaign rallies because it's going to be too risky to bring all these people together who might have it, might not have it, might be exposed to people who do have it and don't know it. It won't affect Democrat rallies because they're not drawing anybody to their rallies except for crazy Bernie. What are you laughing at in there? Did you just not, you think, oh, there could be something to this or you think this is kooky? Well, yeah, the Democrats don't have to worry about it because nobody shows up at Democrat rallies. The only people showing up at Democrat rallies are for Crazy Bernie's, and they're trying to destroy Crazy Bernie. So they might want a bunch of people showing up and infecting themselves at his rallies. They've already got something. I don't know what that means. Uh, uh, yeah, well, we know that they're, they're, they're crazy. Uh, but I'm sounding crazy reacting to things I don't know what they're related to. At any rate, here's his note. If it stays on this psychological course, how does Trump have campaign rallies with large groups of people? How can candidates have people gather like that and not appear insensitive to the alleged risks? Well, again, the Democrats don't have to worry about it. You know how many? Where, where, where's the story? Where is the story? I have here, what did I do with it? It's eight people showed up at a Bloomberg rally is the, is the, is the but the, the, the way the headline is written is classic. You know, and I, I probably put it in a Democrat stack over here because it is a Democrat story and it's probably going to be at the bottom. But let me find it here. 
because it it uh, it makes here it is massive line of eight people forms in Bentonville, Arkansas for Bloomberg rally. Massive line of eight. They're not drawing anybody. So this isn't going to affect them. But this is a good question, don't you think? If it stays on this psychological course and level, how does Trump have campaign rallies with large groups of people? How can how can he have people gather like that and not appear to be insensitive? Let's say this is still going on around election time. How do they have elections with masses of people having to go? It's not going to be. It isn't going to last. This is going to end. It all, everything ends. Everything has a lifespan. This will be over at some point. It will peak. And there will be a downside. Uh, you may remember we had audio soundbite of the Apple CEO, Tim Cook, in a, in a little preview excerpt of an interview on a Fox Business Channel or Fox Business Network they ran today. He thinks it's peaked in China and is on the way down. Other people say, oh, no, the Chicoms haven't begun to tell the truth about how many infections, how many cases, how many deaths and all that. Isn't it, isn't it fascinating to know that there are people out there who want you to think of the worst and the worst getting even worser? And this is what you have to you have to fight against. You remember I started to explain something yesterday. Trump says that uh, he was asked a question by a drive-by media person and in his press conference, like it was Wednesday. He gets inevitable. He said, "No, I don't think anything's inevitable." And I think that is such a window into Trump's mind. In fact, let's. That soundbite three. No, let's play audio soundbite number one first. Audio soundbite number one. Got to do it. Got to get out of the way. Dana Bash this morning on CNN talking about Vice President Pence and the Trump administration's handling of the coronavirus situation. The vice president is going to a previously scheduled fundraiser in Florida. Now, the vice president's office uh, insists that he can do both, that he is also going to be leading a task force this afternoon. He is also going to be heavily involved and that there is a balance between being in charge of this crisis and not making it look like there should be extra panic. But we all remember what has happened in recent history with presidents uh, and politicians who have kind of gone about their business and it's come back to bite them. Well, I wonder what he could be doing later today. Why, here's at CNN, they're trying to tell you that Pence cannot walk and chew gum at the same time, that he can't go to a fundraiser, whatever fundraiser is in Florida. He can't go to the and run the task force at the same time because we all know, we all know Republican presidents who've been caught up trying to do this in the past. And you know what they bring out? They bring out George W. Bush on 9-11. He's down in Florida and he's reading books about ducks to four-year-olds, kindergarten or whatever. And if somebody comes in, and whispers into his ear that the World Trade Center's been attacked. So he has to act like nothing's happened and button it up, zip it up, and get out of there. And later in the day, Peter Jennings, ABC's World News Tonight, says, you know, some presidents are just good at this, and some aren't. 
And then he said, Bill Clinton was a master. So this is what they're talking about, that Mike Pence, he can't do a fundraiser and run the task force at the same time. What did she say? We all remember what has happened in recent history with presidents and politicians who've kind of gone about their business and it's come back to bite them. I wonder what he could be doing. As I say, folks, it's a, it might be a great day to go to the Apple TV app store and download the new Rush Limbaugh app. There, don't search for Rush because there's a bunch of apps with the Rush name. Just search for Rush Limbaugh. It's the only thing that will pop up. And again, it's free. Just download it. It's an in-app purchase. Totally up to you whether or not you wish. Now, here's Trump and inevitability. This was Wednesday night at the press conference. And it is, oh, yes, it was the NBC info, babe, Hallie Jacks. I watched her. You know, she sits in a front row. The NBC people have front row at these things. Look bored, silly. Just look bored. Because, you know, she knows that that job's the next step is the Today Show. So whenever they get tired of Savannah Guthrie, they'll farm her out to the 9 or 10 o'clock hour, and then they'll move Hallie Jack. Well, that's how NBC does it. I mean, that's, that's the career path. You go ahead and laugh at me and they're all you want, but it's how it happened. Katie Couric, look at it. It's, it's how it happens. And that's how they lure all these women to go work for cable and other NBC. You could be on the Today Show instead of 10. Really? Yeah. So anyway, she's White House. Of course, she's looking bored as she can be because she hates Trump anyway. And when it got time to ask a question, you know, Mr. President, you have just contradicted everything every one of your medical experts behind you has been saying. And Trump let it go. He didn't engage. He could have. But then she said, in just the course, here it is, in just the course of the last couple of minutes, you've disputed some of what the officials that are working in your regime behind you have said about the risk of coronavirus that spread. Do you trust your health officials to, uh, to give you good information? I don't think I have. They've said it could be worse, and I've said it could be worse, too. I don't think it's inevitable. I think that we're doing a really good job in terms of maintaining borders, in terms of letting people in, in terms of checking people. And also, that's one of the reasons I'm here today, getting the word out so people can they'll know. They're going to know. No, I don't think it's I don't think it's inevitable. I think that there's a chance that it could get worse. There's a chance it could get fairly substantially worse. But uh, nothing's inevitable. Now, this is what I want to try to explain. I've, uh, you know, after the uh, the day of the State of the Union and the president uh, finding a way to get Catherine and I there, Catherine and me there properly stated, uh, even though I I know Trump a long time and I've known him very well, I I that that day uh, told me as much, if not more, about him than I had known in all the years previous. Just who he is, the kind of person he is, the kind of man, the kind of heart that he has. And one day, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to describe every detail of that day. I don't have permission to do it now. It's gonna, it would take a, a, close to an hour to go through every day, how that happened. But it was very revealing and eye-opening. And I think... When you think of the word inevitable, what what comes to your mind? Something bad, right? When something's inevitable, oh, it's like it, it's like when Leo DeRocher died. Howard Cosell said it was inevitable because everybody dies. You just never think it's going to happen to you, which is to me evidence of the grace of God. Everybody dies. Everybody knows they're going to die, but for most of your life, you're able to think it never happens to you. It only happens to other people, anyway. 
inevitability has always got a negative connotation to it. Now, Trump's instinctive rejection of the media's insistence that the spread of the virus is inevitable. I mean, the catastrophic, the pandemic spread is inevitable. He doesn't agree. And I I find this fascinating. I think it's interesting to study this and try to determine why. Because here's a man who has gotten more done in his life than most people ever will. And he doesn't have an attitude that things won't happen when he's involved in them. He thinks they will. And you know the power of the mind. It's incredible. It's untapped. But you know as well as I do, having a positive mental attitude and a can-do spirit is a large part of achievement. Thinking you can do it. Thinking that it will happen. It's, it's more than confidence. But that's a big part of it. So here's the media, Hallie Jackson, and dumb questions about inevitability. The CDC says it's this, and everybody says it's this, Dr. Fauci. I don't think it's inevitable. Trump says nothing is inevitable. I don't know how many people notice it, but I did. I get a huge insight into who he is, why he's legendarily successful and achieved. And I will continue the explanation when I have more time right after this. All right, inevitable. Something is inevitable. You naturally think that it is bad. It is. There's a fatalistic attachment or component when people use the word inevitable. Trump believes and proves that problems can be solved and fixed. It's his whole life. He has had problems to solve in his businesses. He's had problems to solve as president, and he's done a bang-up job of it. The evidence is daily, and it's right in front of our face. Why isn't that inspiring confidence? It's because people are being swarmed. Like Mick Mulvaney was at CPAC today. He said, turn your TV off for 24 hours. Just turn it off. And he's right. You'll have a different attitude about a lot of things if you just turn off the drive-bys for 24 hours. You know what else inevitable does? The whole concept of inevitability. Inevitable ignores human agency, human involvement. Humans don't give up. Some do, but not everybody. A lot of humans attack problems and solve them. God bless them. Thank God they do. Most of them are anonymous and we'll never meet them. And they do what 99% of us would not do. They go down to sewers. They join the military. They climb electricity poles. They build gigantic buildings on little cranes. I mean, they do things we wouldn't do. They tackle problems and they solve them. Trump believes and proves that unleashed and unshackled free people make a positive difference in life. Look, I want to wrap this up because I think this is important, uh, folks. This is going to end. It is going to end, and when it does, you're going to have massive buying opportunities in the stock market. Huge. You know what Apple's doing? You know what Apple is going to do? Apple is going to use this. They've done, I think, what's the number I saw? The 4% of their value has plummeted in the stock market. They've gone from a share price high, January 20th. This is an example. They were around $325 a share. They're down to the 270s, I think, or 240s. I forget which. Doesn't matter. Down either 4 or 7%, and they're going to start buying back their stock. That's a feature that Apple has been doing 
for a number of years buying their own stock, particularly during plummets like this. They shore up the value of the stock for their investors. It's a it's a great move for investors. A lot of people, why is Apple buying back so many shares? Because they're buying them on the cheap. They're investing in themselves because they know it's going to bounce back as soon as this is over. And this is going to be over at some point. And I'm just telling you, you're going to be far better situated mentally, physically, psychologically, if you have that attitude of rather than get caught up in the end of the world scenarios that the media are presenting to you. Because I'm telling you, folks, look at any story on the Democrat primaries, the Democrat debate, you will not see the coronavirus infecting any of it. If you want, if you want great examples of media bias, the Trump administration can't function without the coronavirus about to destroy it and thus you. But the Democrats somehow are totally unaffected by it. Why, it's amazing. Point is, there is no doom and gloom in the reporting of what the Democrats, other than the fact that crazy Bernie is leading everybody, which is doom and gloom in and of itself. But it's going to end. Things end. Everything ends and changes, directions change. Trump knows this. Trump is a doer. He is a problem solver. He doesn't believe in the inevitability of apocalyptic things or even negative. That's why, you know, people say, well, Trump, he's just, he was just playing PR. Of course, he's not going to admit the worst. No, 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 he's not doing that. He doesn't believe this is the end of anything. It's just another problem to be dealt with and solved. For the benefit of America, from as far as Trump's concerned, he's going to deal with this coronavirus in ways that most benefit America, the American people, the American economy. By the way, Mr. Snurdley, you remember when this thing first happened, I warned, I told people in Rio Linda, it has nothing to do with the beer from Mexico. Well, guess what? People are beginning to boycott Corona beer from Mexico because they think Corona beer, Corona virus. I'm not kidding. You crack a joke about it and it happens. Here's a, one more thing about Trump and inevitability. And then I want you to get sound bites five and six standing by. <clears throat> inevitable. As a negative Thing, inevitable as apocalyptic, inevitable as, oh, God, it's going to be horrible, inevitable as, oh, we're going to be wiped out, inevitable as, oh, we're going to die, ignores the entire history of this country. It ignores the innovation of the American people. It ignores the positive adaptability. Talked about this yesterday. Human beings are the most adaptive beings on the planet, but every living being has to adapt. Some people call it evolution. I call it adaptation. We invented air conditioning. That's adapting to businesses being shut in the summertime because you can't go into buildings because it's too hot. There's any numbers, number of examples of this. Uh, we, we adapt to, we want to live in the ocean. Oh, by the way, Turtle lights go off Sunday night. For all of you that live on the beach in Florida, you're going to turn every damn light off starting Sunday night all the way through October 31st. 
I saw the warning. I saw the threatening story in the Palm Beach, the, the, the shiny sheet today. They're not news stories. They're threats. At any rate, we adapt. You want to live on the, on the beach in a place where there are hurricanes? Well, then you build your house or your building to withstand certain winds, and then you take the risk. You adapt. You have to adapt during things like this. The coronavirus, the flu virus, the swine flu, the pig flu, the shoe flu, whatever flu comes up, we adapt. It is not inevitable that we're going to die. It's not inevitable we're going to be wiped out because believing that way ignores the innovation of the American people and the adaptability of the American people. And I'm telling you, Donald Trump believes and proves by his, his life every day the American people can and have innovated, adapted. Look at his rallies. Look at all of his rallies. He celebrates the accomplishments of the strong pioneer men and women who made the country. He knows how tough it was. We are a tough people. If you listen to the drive-by media, though, we're just not, we're a bunch of helpless victims, incapable of avoiding horrible, rotten things. And it's especially bad when we got Republicans in government because they're really bad and really incompetent. That's that's the sum total of it. But the whole concept of inevitable and inevitability goes against who Trump is and what he believes to be true about the country. See, the, the, the problems that, that the left, the liberals, the Democrats, the media, the problems they focus on – Take a look at them. What are the problems that they constantly focus on? They, they are hypnotically proclaimed as inevitable. Climate change is going to destroy whatever. Net neutrality. We're going to wipe out the Internet if we don't go back to net neutrality. By the way, Internet speeds since net neutrality was wiped out have almost doubled for people. The exact opposite of what the doomsayers on the left predicted. Uh, you've got people, climate change going to wipe us out. Population going to destroy us. Everything the left does is inevitable apocalyptic. Demographics changes are going to wipe out America. Demographics going to change. Demographics are going to take away everything white racist built. Demographics here, climate change there, you name it. Homelessness, racism, to liberals, it's inevitable that everything's only going to get worse. And they have built their political foundation on trying to convince as many people as possible it's bad and it's going to get worse and there's nothing you can do about it except vote for them. That's it. That's your role in life. If you don't vote for them, you don't vote for Obama, you don't vote for Hillary, don't vote for crazy Britain, then you are stuck. And we don't have a person in the White House who is anywhere near that. We couldn't have anybody better to manage this than we've got. We, we wouldn't want somebody like Hillary or Bernie Sanders, or or Elizabeth Warren, or any of these people managing this thing, because they would have already given up. 
they would have given up and they would have told you to hunker down or do whatever. They don't, there's no, to them, everything is inevitable and it's inevitably bad because it's that framework and foundation for which they draw their power. Drew Pinsky, Dr. Drew Pinsky, this guy is so filled with common sense. There's, I, I saw this, and I, I, forgot, I was going to make a note to cook as a senator link and, and get this. She found it on her own. This is great. There's a syndicated program that I don't ever heard of it until now called Daily Blast Live. When I first saw it, I thought it was Daily Beast Live. I said, no, nah, Dr. Drew wouldn't be on Daily Beast Live. Cause... So I, I miss a Daily Blast Live. And the host was uh, Sam Shocker. It's a woman. And she got Dr. Drew Pinsky on there, who tells the truth about medical things. He goes against, he's not a conformist, he goes against the grain, goes against against conventional wisdom unabashedly, and he did on the coronavirus. So the host, Sam Shocker, said to Dr. Drew Pinsky, you you believe uh, Vice President Pence the right person to handle this, considering how he mishandled the HIV epidemic in 2015? The needle exchange program, which one study said actually contributed to more deaths. I don't know what they're talking about. We used to point at the way Indiana responded to the opiate and the HIV epidemic as the model for the country. I don't know what they're talking about. The only reason I felt comfortable with Pence as vice president was I was aware of his track record in Indiana in handling these serious problems. And they handled them better than most states did, almost any other state. So I don't know what the hell people are talking about. That is fake news. Bingo! It is! Indiana, when Pence was governor, you remember they passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And it was in response to the left discriminating against Christians. The public square, and so Indiana passed legislation, Religious Freedom Restoration Act was simply restored and codified an element of the First Amendment. The media went nuts! Said this was a this was an attack against homosexuals, and they went out and they tried to find businesses who would th- not bake a cake for a gay wedding reception, or would not uh, bake a bunch of pizzas for one. And they found a twenty-year-old girl who was managing a family pizza business, some small town. They'd gone all over the state trying to find somebody. They found this one. If 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 a, if a gay couple came in and ordered pizzas for your uh, for their wedding reception, would, would you would you serve? No, we wouldn't. It goes against our religion. That's all it took. That business, the media throughout state Indiana, focusing on it, what a bunch of rubes, what a bunch of homophobes, what a bunch of bigots, and so forth. And they did the same thing with, with Pence and the handling of AIDS. They can't because, folks, there's no way that a conservative is ever going to be given credit or acknowledged for doing anything positive for the homosexual community in the medical arena. And here's Pensky setting people straight on how it's all fake news that Pence didn't know what he was doing and caused the whole area to lose ground. There's another bite I have for you. About five. We're going to go backwards. We'll get to that after this break. Don't go away. Let me share with you a headline from a story I found today, digging deep into show prep. Numbers show coronavirus appears far less deadly than flu, but government and media keep promoting panic. Now, 
you do a story like this and they'll go nuts at CNN. They'll call you irresponsible. Same thing at CBS, ABC, NBC. And yet the story's out there. I had nothing to do with it. It's from some place called Western Journalism by C. Douglas Golden. And some pull quotes here. Fear helps make government more powerful. It keeps them looking like our savior. Something it helps to remember in situations like this. The city-state of Singapore. City-state of Singapore government ended up subsidizing masks so that every family could have them after people decided to hoard them like they were bottled water in a storm. Pharmacies reported massive shortages of both the masks and sanitizer. Singapore had, as of this past weekend, 89 confirmed coronavirus cases, and that panic had caused them to sell out of masks all over the city-state. That means point zero 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 two. I'm sorry, point zero zero two. Two one hundredths of the population's infected. Keep in mind, too, that Singapore's government's much more open about the coronavirus numbers than the CHICOMs are. In other words, Spanish flu, this isn't. Between October 1st and February 15th, the CDC estimates there have been between 29 and 41 million cases of the flu in the U.S., causing between 16,000 and 41,000 deaths. Remember that the fatality rate in the U.S. from coronavirus is currently zero. It doesn't matter, Rich. It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. As more people get it, it spreads. And we don't know how. This is the... This is the... Why I was saying, folks, we're dealing with a common cold right now. And look what they did to me with that comment. All trying to avoid a panic. And keep things in perspective. Numbers show coronavirus appears far less deadly than the flu. Now let's go back to Dr. Drew Pinsky. On the Daily Blast Live and the host Sam Shocker. Question. You recently said that much of the concern about the coronavirus is really media overhype. You still feel as passionate as you did a couple weeks ago about that? We have in the United States 24 million cases of flu-like illness, 180,000 hospitalizations, 16,000 dead from influenza. We have zero deaths from coronavirus. We have almost no cases. There are people walking around out there with the virus that don't even know they have it. It's so mild. So it's going to be much more widespread than we knew. It's going to be much milder than we knew. The 1.7% fatality rate is going to fall. Where was the press during the Mediterranean corona outbreak when the fatality rate was 41%? Why did they get queries about MERS or SARS? This is an overblown press-created hysteria. This thing is well at hand. And President Trump is absolutely correct. Well, I, I guess it's not just me out there saying this stuff. I guess it isn't just. I guess there's some voices of reason all over. The, and when Drew Pinsky... Or this guy, C. Douglas Golden, when they write and say this stuff, they are attacked. They are beat up as irresponsible, not taking it seriously enough. They may even have an indirect hand in the fatality rate because they're telling people there's nothing to worry about. That's not what they're saying. What they're saying is the odds are... Believe half of what you hear from the media because there's so much hype here for all kinds of reasons. And number, w- w- look at when I heard somebody in the drive-by media say this could be an opening for the Democrats. 
then that's when they started politicizing. Now, you people in the media get all mad at me all you want. All I do is listen to you. This could be an opening for the Democrat. What does that mean? People getting sick to the degree you say it's going to happen is a good thing for the Democrats? Is that really what the Democrat Party wants to be known for right now as profiting from people getting sick? That's how we're going to get rid of Donald Trump? It's not me saying it. I'm not the one saying this could be an opening for the Democrats. It's the media saying it. And we are back. Now, on this business of politicizing this, I have it right here in my formerly nicotine-stained thing. Gail Collins in the New York Times yesterday, two days ago. Let's just call it the Trump virus. If you're feeling awful, you know who to blame. That's how it starts. And they get mad at me for claiming that they are politicizing this and seeing opening for Trump. You people in media are so transparent now, you don't even see it yourselves. We are so happy to have you with us today, folks, as we are each and every day. Great to be with you at the same time. Rush Limbaugh and Broadcast Excellence on Friday. So let's hit it. Live from the Southern Command in sunny South Florida, it's Open Line Friday. I almost forgot that it was Friday. I almost forgot to call for the Open Line Friday jingle. Now, we normally we try to get to um, phone calls early on Friday, but I haven't managed to pull it off. It's not inevitable, you know, that we're going to get the phone calls. We try to do it each and every time. But on Friday, you can talk about whatever you wish to talk to and about 800-282-2882 and the <clears throat> email address lrushbo at eibnet.us so in this monologue segment i'm going to go i'm going to go to the democrat primary news and you will see that there isn't a word about the coronavirus in any of it It's amazing. Coronavirus, no impact on the South Carolina primary. Coronavirus, no impact on Super Tuesday. Coronavirus, no worries about going to any of these candidates' rallies. But before that, just to see, one, two, three, two, three, a couple, three sound bites. I, I mentioned Mulvaney who's the acting chief of staff, the director of office management budget. He went CPAC. Today was being interviewed by Stephen Moore, former Trump economic advisor, now a a Wall Street Journal honcho, I believe. Anyway, Steve Moore said to Mulvaney, obviously people, a little bit of a panic about the coronavirus. I was watching fake news last night, CNN, PMS, NBC. They're saying that President Trump isn't in charge, that he doesn't know what he's doing. He's been asleep at the switch. Can you disabuse us of that? You're saying so much attention to it today is that they think this is going to be what brings down the president. That's what this is all about. Um, I got a note today from a reporter saying, what are you going to do today to calm the markets? I'm like, really, what I might do today to calm the markets is tell people to turn their televisions off for 24 hours. So, listen, is it real? It absolutely is real. There's no question about it. But you saw the president the other day. The flu is real. 
At any particular time, 20 million people in this country are going to have the flu. The flu kills people. It does. This is not Ebola. It's not SARS. It's not MERS. You know, all of that is true, but man, does the media come down on you when you say that, when you try to disabuse people of the notion. And he's absolutely right. At any particular time, 20 million people, a country going to have the flu. We don't have even the official number. You know, you've heard of 8,400 people in California might. No, well, might have, could have, would have. California hates Trump. I mean, the government of California does, the Democrats. Mulvaney's absolutely right. The attention being brought to this is the exact amount of attention they had on Trump-Russia collusion and meddling, and then Trump impeachment with the phone call to Ukraine is exactly what it. All you have to do, folks, like I say, is hear somebody in the media say, this could be an opening for the Democrats. What could be an opening for the Democrats? People getting sick? So Mulvaney is absolutely right. And if you want to calm down, stop watching these people. Turn your TV off and just listen to this show. Don't watch cable news for 24 hours. You should try it anyway and just see how much your overall attitude improves. It, folks, it's undeniable if you, have the, if you have the ability to do it. It is amazing how your attitude about life in general and your day will change dramatically if you are not subjecting yourself to a barrage of apocalyptic stuff. Here's Donald Trump Jr. He was on with, uh, with, with uh, Steve Ducey today, Fox and Friends. Question, an op-ed in the New York Times. That's what I am called your attention to moments ago, Gail Collins. Let's just call it Trump virus. And then in the story, it says, if you're feeling awful, you know who to blame. So why are they trying to politicize this global outbreak? Are you surprised the way the Democrats have been handling the coronavirus situation? For them to try to take a pandemic and seemingly hope that it comes here and kills millions of people so that they could end Donald Trump's streak of winning is a new level of sickness. I don't know if this is coronavirus or Trump derangement syndrome, but these people are infected badly. This is the New York Times writing this with seriousness. It's truly sick. It's mean-spirited to boot, and yet you can't criticize them because they're good people. They are liberals. They care. They have big hearts and compassion. So they can run around. They can call it Trump virus. They can blame Trump. They can wish and hope that this hurts Trump all day long. But you call them out on it, and you're some kind of awful, rotten example of a human being. Here's Thomas Loopy Friedman who was on with Fredo Cuomo last night, the combined IQ of the host and the guest might equal a carrot. And this is what Loopy Friedman said about the coronavirus in the 2020 presidential election. What if this is Katrina times 10? If it is, you could see the public looking for a leader who has two things that are very, very important in this kind of situation. What? One, experience in managing a crisis, and two, an ability to pull together a coalition. Those demands and requirements could really damage Bernie Sanders. 
Biden, Bloomberg, Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, uh, Elizabeth Warren, they all could be viewed differently in two weeks. We could be looking for a very different Give candidate. Give me a break. Stop the tape. I've said there the isn't. Take a look at the support any of those people have. Friedman, there's not a person in this country is looking at them as people who could put together a coalition. Nobody would have even heard of half of these people if they weren't running for president, even though they are. Most people have never heard of them, but just because they're Democrats and just because they're running for president, why, they might be brilliant at putting together a coalition. They might be the best in the brains. Just because they're Democrats running for president? Biden, Bloomberg, Buddha Judge, Klobuchar, Foucault. So utterly unimaginative. The one guy who is a problem solver, the one guy who is able to manage a crisis is Donald Trump. Okay, so there are three stories. Now I want to go to the Democrat Party stack just to show you what I'm talking about. And I have to go to audio soundbite. Grab audio soundbite number 14. I think this is. Yes, I know I set it aside. No, I can't find where I set it aside. It's number 14. Um, Operation Chaos 2020. A movement is urging South Carolina Republicans to vote in the Democrat presidential primary. Officials with the Greenville County Tea Party and the GOP are urging people across the state of South Carolina to vote in the Democrat presidential preference primary on Saturday, regardless of political affiliation. They're calling it Operation Chaos 2020. They say it is a statewide movement encouraging Republicans to vote in Democrat presidential preference primary. I wish I I could find the damn transcript. I put it aside here. It's number 14. Go ahead and play the soundbite, and I'll try to find it anyway. There's the Tea Party movement in South Carolina that is urging voters, urging Republican voters. What they're saying is people should go out and vote for Bernie Sanders. Some are interpreting that as a way of sort of meddling with the Democratic process, but also getting a more favorable candidate to oppose Donald Trump. Operation Chaos was something coined by Rush Limbaugh back when Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama were going at one another in 2008, trying to get people to vote for Hillary Clinton to keep Barack Obama uh, getting battered in a race so that he was a weaker candidate when he would finally go on to face the Republican that year. It does have some potential impact, especially in a race with so many candidates. That's not what it was about. But the bottom line is Operation Chaos. When did we do Operation Chaos in 2008? And we're 12 years later, the Democrats are still paranoid of Operation Chaos. Let me remind you, as I say, people listening to this program for the first time every hour of this program. So those of you who've been here a while, I ask you to be patient while I bring others, the newbies, up to speed. In 2008, the Republican nominee was John McCain, and he had it wrapped up early. There was no drama left on the Republican side. As early as March of 2008, once the Florida shebang was over, we knew it was going to be McCain. There weren't, not everybody was happy about that, but there was no drama left on the Republican side. On the Democrat side, Obama was running away with it, but Hillary still had an outside chance. 
And I needed that Democrat primary to go on and on and on so that there would be some drama. So that there would be something to talk about. The worst thing in the world would be for both candidates, both parties to have their nominees as early as March. Big whoop. Nobody's going to start spending any campaign money that seriously far out from the election. So I urged Republican voters, since they had all, the nominee was already in, it didn't matter how Republicans voted in the remaining primaries because it was McCain. So in states with open primaries, I urged Republicans to re-register as Democrats in order to vote. And I urged them to vote for Hillary. Just to keep this going, just, just just to deny Obama for as long as we could. But it was about, it wasn't about, as the soundbite said here, uh, it, 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 it wasn't trying to get a weaker candidate for it. Everybody knew it was going to be Obama. We just wanted to prolong it. So I urged people to go out there and vote for Hillary. And in two or three states, it may have mattered. There may have actually been enough Republicans that did this to matter because Hillary won at Indiana, uh, and particularly a couple of of uh, big precincts in Indiana that could only have been because Republicans crossed over. It was so impactful, folks, that the Democrats made a movie out of it starring George Clooney called The Ides of March. And if you go get the movie, you watch it on Netflix or however you watch movies, the first one-third of that movie is about the Democrat Party's paranoia with Operation Chaos. And it was a total creation of me in this program. And they're now still talking about it 12 years later. And they're, they're pulling it off. They're executing it in South Carolina. There are people, actually, Republicans registering as Democrats or independents to be able to go and vote in the Democrat primary to kind of throw a monkey wrench in it all uh, for the fun of it. And the story, Operation Chaos 2020, a movement urging South Carolina Republicans to vote in the Democrat presidential primary. Stephen Brown... uh, in a news release, said, we're doing this openly and loudly to make a very public protest in opposition to open primaries. We want the South Carolina General Assembly to change the election laws to permit certified political parties to hold closed primaries. So it's just it's just fun. But nowhere in this story is anything about the coronavirus getting in the way. There's nothing here about the coronavirus maybe providing a stumbling block to Operation Chaos. There's nothing about the evil Republicans trying to take advantage of the coronavirus in order to run Operation Chaos. You can't find the coronavirus in the story. Here's another one. This is a Breitbart story. Biden urges rivals to quit if they fail to attract support from black voters. Now, the electorate in the South Carolina primary is two-thirds African-American. And so when James Clyburn, the congressional black Caucasians, came out and endorsed Biden, it pretty much meant that he's, he's going to get, he, he's going to win the South Carolina primary. We don't know about how much, 
but it's going to end after they don't have any money left, and he's not. It's not going to carry him to anything in 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 the, into Super Tuesday, which is a few short days later. That's why now Biden is urging, like Mayor Pete, look, the blacks aren't going to vote for you, Pete. You can see it here. It's how you should quit out. You should get out of there. Any Democrat that can't get the black vote has no business running. This is Biden's point. He uh, he made the point during an interview with the uh, Post and Courier newspaper in South Carolina. He said they would have to consider dropping out, not because I want them to or anybody else does, but because the victories and losses are going to dictate it. How do you stay in if you if you haven't demonstrated you can get the black vote in the Democrat Party? How do you stay in if you don't get support in South Carolina? I just think the process is going to take care of that. Nowhere here is there a story about the coronavirus. There's not a mention of the coronavirus in the story about Biden urging Democrats to get out of the race if they don't get any black support in the South Carolina. By the way, Biden has admitted that he did not get arrested trying to find Nelson Mandela on Robbins Island in South Africa when he was released from jail. And Biden, has he corrected himself that 150 million people have not been killed with guns in the last whatever? He hasn't corrected that, huh? But he did say that he, he didn't, he wasn't, he didn't get arrested. I don't know. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe there's a Brian Williams virus that runs around and infects people, makes them lie about telling people they were at places where they weren't. The Brian Williams virus. Maybe maybe that's what Biden has. We can't find any evidence of that. Either. Okay, well, here's the next story. Uh, New York Times. Democrat leaders willing to risk party damage to stop Bernie Sanders. Oh, I just saw the clock here. Interviews with dozens of Democrat Party officials, including 93 superdelegates, found overwhelming opposition to handing Sanders the nomination if he falls short of a majority delegates. Again, not a single word about the coronavirus in this story involving Democrats and delegates and the Democrat nomination. Got to take a break. We'll keep this up when we get back. Don't go anywhere. Okay, it's open line Friday, and I want to get started on the phones. This is Bill in Mercersburg, Pennsylvania. Great to have you, Bill. Hi. Hi, Rose. Happy Friday to you, sir. Thank you, sir. Hey, yesterday you were uh, pretty excited about going on about uh, the common cold, as they put it, with all these other reporters mentioning you in all their stories. And I have an answer for you because you didn't understand why, like Oda Copy and all these other reporters from CNN, MSNBC. Oh, no, I understand why they do it, but I'll be interested to hear your theory. Well, my thoughts on this are they have less than 600,000 viewers at one time all the way down to zero. You mentioned them. Their report that they have done has now instantly got over 20 million people hearing their names and their, what they're reporting. You know, folks. Right or wrong? No, you're not wrong. Bill has on to something here. And in fact, in fact, this is exactly why I don't play audio clips from PMSNBC. Why promote these people? There's, I, 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 there is validity to this point. It's not the only reason. And it's not the big reason, but it is a reason that they called me out is that they hope 
I'll respond and mention name and maybe even play the soundbite of them saying it on this program so that they'll have exposure to an even larger audience than their own little podunk little audiences they have on cable news. But I guess the, the top reason why they do is because I'm the only one initially who says what I say, and it's always at variance with the points they want to make, and it's always about attacking the credibility of effective opponents of theirs. And that is the that that that's the primary reason. But but Bill here is right. It's also about having their names mentioned on an actually big audience. Hi, welcome back. Rush Limbaugh, give me line one. I need to take line one right now. Ralph in Tampa. We'll get back to you in just a second, Ralph. Ralph was told that he was next, but we got to go. Steve in Cortez, Colorado. Hi, Steve. Great to have you on the EIB Network. Hello. Hey, Rush. How are you? Good, sir. Thank you very much. Hey, I've had a question I've been wondering about for a while. Do you think the three-hour swaths or program cuts through the middle of the day hurts or helps GDP during that time? I think it helps. I think productivity goes up. People are happier. They work harder. They work more industriously because they're happy listening to this program. They do. And in fact, the reason I wanted to move your call up, I just got a, I just got an email from a stockbroker who said that this program that is having an impact on the market, that since this program began, the stock market has regained about 450 points. It was down 1,000 or 900, down 500 and some odd. He thinks this program has caused the market to rebound it because there's some some optimism here and and there's some uh, some some very, very minor fatalism, if if any at all. And he says it'll be interesting to see what happens when your program ends. But no, I, I think the economy of this program, the GDP, is ramped up because of this program. It's a very good question, by the way. Well, I, I know that when I'm in the office doing work, I'm probably less productive when I'm listening. But when I'm out on the job working, I'm probably more productive. Yeah, see, that's the way it goes. I can, it, it, it can cut both ways because there's one thing about this program. Nobody listens to it in the background. There is no such thing as passive listening in the EIB network. It's all active, meaning it's all you're doing when you're listening. It's not like elevator music or, you know, a lot of television shows are background. You're doing other things while they are on you half notice and you listen halfway and you're running around to but, but a radio program like this you're glued uh, nothing nothing passive about it and and so if you're glued and you're just sitting around yeah but if you're working I guarantee you it puts an extra spring in uh, in your step okay I appreciate the call uh, Steve Ralph in Tampa what's up with you sir I'm, I'm glad you let me uh, sidestep you there for just a second welcome to the program hi yeah, no problem. Uh, Mega Purge, Rush. Uh, you know, I, I want to get your take on this. I, I hear everybody talking about the coronavirus and its, ev- and its inevitability and how it's bad for Trump. But when I think about the big picture, I think this is something that's only going to strengthen this platform in 2020. And it goes beyond what I heard both and you him both talking about with um, border security and, and our medicine here, you know, definitely contrary to where the left has taken us in the 2020 election. I, I don't think the stock market is pricing in um, an upset in the election, 
And therefore, I don't think this, this is a fear that's taken the stock market down. I, I truly believe this is more of a, a supply chain issue with production and manufacturing in, in China. And when you look at the ticket, Trump is the only one out there hammering this. That, you know, we cannot be tied to China as only source of goods and, and, and what have you. And I wonder if, if, you know, you've given any thought to that with the stock market. Um, uh you you think it's the, the reason the stock market is down because the supply chain uh, for so much of American manufacturing is in China and China's being negatively impacted, the workforce, that's why you think the market's down? Yeah, I, I do, because the only reason it would be down is if they, the American people and the stock market thought that Trump was going to lose. No, and I'm going to tell you, I, let, me, let me go all in here. I think that there's a lot of things that have not changed since Trump was elected, and that is there is all kinds of people throughout the American establishment that want him gone. We know, we've had Democrats admit that they would lose money if it, if it took that to get rid of Trump. I think we're looking here at, at a, a coordinated effort just as, I don't know how, how much, but there's no question Mulvaney's right. This is an opportunity to help the Democrats. The Democrats and the media are saying it themselves. That's what, I mean, I kind of, in the last half hour of the program, as I admit it, I will admit, I lost it. I got so mad when I came across that quote. This could be an opening for the Democrats. What does that mean? People getting sick the way they're hyping this. A pandemic, people getting sick and dying, could be an opening for the Democrats. I, I think the tentacles of the cabal or of the, the people, just in general, who hate Trump and would like to see him gone, is is very deep, and it's uh, it's wide. I'm not saying that this is a coordinated conspiracy. Don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that somebody created the virus to pull all this off. There's just a bunch of opportunists. Now, the stock market, as a reflection of the Chinese supply chain, we're going to have a chance to see if your theory is right. Grab Soundbites 22 and 23. Tim Cook, CEO of Apple. Let me just, before I play any Soundbites, I know that you all know that I'm an Apple fanboy. And I'm an Apple fanboy for a whole lot of reasons. To produce the iPhone alone, to have it be routinely the far and away best, to be able to have a supply chain that provides. Look, if they sell 250 million iPhones, they've got to have 250 million of everything in one. And they have to have them at a precise time. They manufacture these phones by hand. They assemble them by hand at a record rate in these Chinese factories. It's, it's phenomenal. The, the Apple supply chain and the operations department of Apple to manage all this is beyond the comprehension of a single human being. I, I know most people don't stop to think of this. They just the, the new iPhones come out. They decide whether or not they can afford it, go buy it or not. Then they use it and set it up. And it's like that for me. You don't know what what it all is involved to, to produce a case of Diet Coke, for example, or you know to manufacture a car, unless you're passionate about those particular things. But the supply chain, 
that Apple has to maintain. And they can't just use one supplier for these parts, because what happens if something like this, like the coronavirus, affects one supplier? They have to have the most diverse supply chain. They have to have dibs. They have to be the first company supplied by all of these suppliers. Uh, it, it is phenomenal what they are able to pull off in manufacturing a state-of-the-art iPhone and releasing it in September every year. You just don't think about it unless you really delve into it and learn how they do it. It, it takes the number of people. You look at one iPhone, maybe five guys could put that together. Folks, the number of people it takes to plan to find the parts. You know, you, you, you can only make, if you're going to make an iPhone, you can only produce what the latest mass-producible ingredients are. And, and, and to be state-of-the-art tech on at that scale, hundreds of millions of new ones every year, state-of-the-art tech, it's phenomenal. And their supply chain is all over the world, not just China. It's in Taiwan, it's in Vietnam, it's in Singapore, it's in South Korea, uh, United States. But all of that stuff has to be shipped to China for final assembly because that's where the iPhones and the iPads are. Some in India and some in Vietnam and and, and Brazil, uh, Taiwan. And they're trying to diversify that now precisely because of what's happened here with the coronavirus. So let's listen to Cook, okay? He's a CEO and he can't lie publicly traded company like this, he cannot lie. The media can lie all day about Apple, and they do. But the CEO of Apple, the CEO of Disney, the CEO, anybody talking about profit and loss and earnings, they cannot lie or because if they are found out to be lying, they can go to jail, security and exchange. They can't lie. So let's listen to Cook. Fox Business Network, Cavuto Coast to Coast. It was Susan Lee doing the interview. First question, stock market obviously reacting. Apple's been down the past few weeks. Do you think there's value that investors are missing here by not snapping your stock up at current prices? I don't really focus on the short-term gyrations of the market. I think uh, for me uh, and with the way we run the company, we work for the long term. And I see no long-term difference between uh, what was happening four weeks ago versus what's happening today. And so now the market takes time to recognize that and and so forth, and it'll do what it's going to do. And I'm the last person to be able to predict it. But I would, you know, for me, I look through that, look through the noise and concentrate on the future. And the future looks very bright. He can't lie about this. Uh, Except under penalty of punishment. That would include prison and massive fines personally and for the company. They, they, these guys, these CEOs and the chief financial officers, they can't lie. You know what happens to them if they do? You've heard of the insider training and all that other stuff. Next question. You're the architect of this low inventory, fast-moving supply. That's another. Folks, you wouldn't believe the inventory for Apple at an Apple store and the online store, they turn it over every five days. They don't have inventory. It is the most incredibly well run. They do not have stuff sitting on shelves, unsold. It is the most amazing thing. And Cook was the architect. Steve Jobs hired him to actually do that 
long time ago when Apple didn't know what it was doing in this regard. He was the operations chief, now the CEO, and he's got a bunch of people under him. That and the Operations are the primary mover of Apple, not design, as people believe. You're the architect of this low inventory, fast-moving supply chain Apple currently has. Do you have any idea, maybe uh, move some of that supply chain outside of China right it now? It's important to recognize that our products are built everywhere. I mean, they are truly global products. And so you have several parts that are made in the United States that serve the world. So not only for the iPhones sold in the United States, but those sold around the world. And so what will happen to the supply chain as we look back on this? I wouldn't want to say at this point, because the question for us always is what kind of resilience did the supply chain have? It's not, was there a problem? Because there, there will always be unpredictable things that come up. But as you know from following us, we've worked through earthquakes, tornadoes, fires, floods, tsunamis, SARS. And so we've had a long list of things, and the operational team is very deep at working through these. Bottom line, he's not panicked because they've been through so many things like this. They have alternatives. They have emergency plans. They have alternative sources. And let me, let me tell you how this works. Remember the iPhone X came out, and it was the first phone that was priced at basically $1,000. People react, how dare you? It's a phone. How dare you charge 1000 But it was the first one with facial recognition, facial ID. It had so much state. First with an OLED display. It was state of the art. It was 1000 bucks. It had two cameras. Three years later, they are selling a version of the iPhone 10, now called the iPhone 11, that is better than the iPhone 10 for $300 less. They're selling the iPhone 11 for $699, and it has more in it. It is a better phone than the iPhone 10. The iPhone 10 was the first of its kind. It had to be priced that high in order to buy in all of the high-tech uh, stuff that was in it, and, and the, the early buyers, the people don't care about price, they bought it in droves, and that is what allows Apple to now sell a phone, bigger screen, uh, bigger battery, longer battery life, better cameras for 300 bucks less. It's, it, it's flat out amazing. You don't have to spend $1,000 to get the state-of-the-art phone. You can. They've got one even better than the iPhone 11, but not much because the guts, the iPhone 11 and 11 Pro are pretty much the same. You just talk about screen size and the kind of screen. But it's flat-out amazing. He's not worried, folks, and the bulk of their assembly is in China, and he can't lie about it. So that's the answer. Do you think the supply chain is the problem with the stock? It could be because I'll guarantee you over half the stock market analysts – Telling their clients whether or not to buy Apple, Apple do not know 10% of what I just told you about the company. It's outrageous how ignorant some of them are. I grab audio soundbite number 24. This is uh, this afternoon CNN International, a program called The Express. And it's uh, John Harwood. And this guy has been an anti Republican, anti-conservative, as long as I've been doing this and heard his name. He's been to Wall Street Journal. He's been MSNBC, New York Times. Now he's at CNN. And the host of this CNN international show called The Express, somebody named 
Julia Chatterley. Is that not a great name for somebody hosting a mindless talk show? Julia Chatterley. And she says, she says to Harwood, Mick Mulvaney was at CPAC today saying the media focused on the coronavirus because they think it'll take down President Trump. There's a balance between spreading panic but also providing information. And some would argue there's been a lack of information from the White House in particular, Mr. Harwood. What do you say to that? That was nonsense from Mick Mulvaney. The uh, panic that people are seeing is coming from investors. It's coming from Wall Street. Those are not people who are trying to bring President Trump down. President Trump delivered significant tax cuts and deregulatory policy for those people. Uh, this is uh, the White House uh, through Mick Mulvaney, like outside allies, Rush Limbaugh and others, like the president, like Republicans on Capitol Hill, who are trying to make excuses for a situation that is going badly for the White House. What exactly is going badly for the White House, Mr. Harwood? What exactly is going badly? The response to the actual program has been good. It's people like you running around talking about this being an opening for the Democrats. People like you ratcheting up the panic, talking about the inevitability of the apocalyptic nature of this. What, 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 what actual problem, what response... Are you talking about Trump's press conference? What, 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 you know, this is, as I go through, folks, I'm telling you this is a big thing. As I go through the news here, when I go to any story on the Democrat primary or any of the Democrat candidates, there's not a single reference to coronavirus. Not a single one. By the way, you people in media wondering where Mike Pence is today. Is it a fundraiser? He's going to be right here in this studio in a matter of 10 minutes. As I say, it'd be a good day to go to the Apple TV app store and download the new Rush Limbaugh app. Vice President Mike Pence is here. The EIB studios, the EIB Southern Command, he'll be joining us for the next half hour when we return from our obscene profit break at the top of the hour. Those of you in the media wondering, where's where, where's the vice president? Right here, right where he should be, coming up in mere moments. And here we are, folks. Greetings and welcome back. Rush Limbaugh, the Excellence in Broadcasting Network, on Friday. We'll dispense with the Open Line Friday uh, jingle. We are happy to have with us today. You don't know the media has been trying to find you today. Vice President Mike Pence is here with us today. They have been out of their minds because they haven't been able to find you. And they say, they say you're not taking this seriously enough because they think you were at a fundraiser or some such thing. We are very honored to have you here, sir. It's uh, it's a thrill. I know you were in town and, and uh, graciously gave us a half hour to come by here and try to straighten the American people out on the situation with coronavirus and, and anything else that... Uh, uh, you think the American people should know. First, welcome. You look great. It's it's, it's great to have you here. It really is. Uh, thank you, Rush. It's just, uh, uh, great to be here. Great to see you. Uh, congratulations again on the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Oh, that what a, a, that what was a, a special day. night. It was. Uh, well-deserved. Uh, <laughs> what a day and night that was. I'll ne- my wife and the Catholic, we will never forget what what you all did for us. Well... That day and that night. Well, let's you're, you're, let's get what, yeah. what 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 should the American people know? Yeah, 
today well, about the status of the coronavirus in America and how it is being dealt with and, and as best you can tell what the future is. You bet. You bet. Well, the, look, President Trump has no higher priority than the health and safety of the American people. That's why in the month of January, when we first learned of the coronavirus outbreak, the president took two steps that were unprecedented. No president in American history had ever done it. He suspended all travel uh, to the United States from China uh, by, by non-citizens to the United States. And then he instituted a quarantine policy for American citizens that were coming home that we would make sure that uh, they were taken care of but also received treatment and the proper screening to determine that they were – they were not in any jeopardy for their health, for the health of their family, or for their communities. We also instituted screening at about five different major airports around the country. This in January. Uh, in January. And, and again, the first two steps had never been done by any president. I remember I was in the Oval Office at the time that the White House Task Force on the coronavirus came in. And they said, Mr. President, uh, we have a very, very low risk in this country of an outbreak. That's what they told them at the time. Uh, the risk remains low to this day. But, uh, but they said, we're recommending you take this step, even though it's never been done before. The president said, without hesitating, do it. And, and, uh, um, and all of our health experts, I attended my, my first White House Corona Task Force meeting yesterday. We convened at HHS. Uh, I've been on the phone the whole way here to Florida with all of our team talking and talking with governors around the country and members of Congress. Every single one of the, our health experts have said that if the president had not taken that action in January, we'd be in a very different place than we are today. As of today, we have 15 people in the United States who've contracted the coronavirus here. Uh, all of them have received treatment. Uh, all of them are doing well. There's another 46 Americans that we brought back from China, from overseas. Again, all of them have received treatment. All Some of them, them were on the cruise well. ship in Yokohama. Yes, there were pe- people from the cruise ship, largely a lot of our diplomatic corps in China. But 61 people today in the United States of America. Uh, and, and again, it should be an encouragement to people that, that uh, all those people have been treated. We have one still in the hospital, but all those people are doing well. And uh, the president has directed me uh, to oversee this process uh, to ensure that the full resources of the federal government are brought to bear. So I, I was on the phone this morning uh, with uh, Senator Richard Durbin of Illinois, uh, Senator John Thune. We're working with Congress to put together supplemental funding, not just to make sure that our agencies, HHS, CDC, Homeland Security, have the resources they need, a rush, but we're going to make sure that states uh, and local health officials have the resources to be prepared. And I'm in Florida today. I'll be meeting with the Florida governor to talk about Florida's preparedness. Now, it's got to be a tough job. Look at California. California has the chief doctor of uh, UC Med Center Davis in Sacramento. And they're out hyping that they've got the first case of this disease that didn't contract it overseas, just got it in a community basis, and they can't feel Now they're right. talking about there may be 8,400 people with it, carrying it, not knowing about it. Uh, have you talked to Governor Newsom? Uh, I mean, how, how do you coordinate? Because you, you've got a lot of people 
uh, scared. Uh, you have a lot of people trying to protect themselves politically by trying to get out in front of it as well. It's got to be a massive thing to try to coordinate this to keep the public properly informed and not panicking. But when they hear things like 8,400 cases, maybe, or a case that nobody can explain in California, right. that gets them worried. Right. Uh, I spoke to Governor Newsom uh, yesterday. Very good conversation. Um, and, you know, as the president said at that press conference, Rush, we're all in this together. And the president said to me, this is an all-hands-on-deck effort. And I talked to Governor Newsom because, frankly, California has been a great partner with HHS and CDC. They've worked very closely with us already. Uh, as we've repatriated Americans, we're working very, very closely on the patient that was identified. Uh, and I, I think there's – obviously there's concern about this. Um, but I, I, you know, I want to assure the American people uh, that uh, we're going to make sure that, that – we keep we we set for our part. We set politics aside on this, and we work the problem. And I frankly have been very encouraged. Not only in my conversation with Governor Newsom, uh, with the with the Democrat leadership of the House and Senate, uh, with Governor Cuomo of New York. I mean, we're we're all going to come together as Americans and deal with this issue and put the health and safety of the American people first. Washington's always going to have. Uh, a, a, a political reflexive response to things, but but we're going to tune that out. We're going to work the problem. We're going to make sure that we have the resources necessary. But I want your listeners to know, as we sit here today, uh, the threat of the coronavirus spreading in the United States of America remains low. But that being said, uh, the president said, out of an abundance of caution, we're going to continue to take very very strong measures and to put the health and safety of the American people first. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm asking these next series of questions. I don't, I don't want to pretend to be something I'm not. I'm for you guys. I, I, want, I want you to succeed because this needs success. I mean, this problem needs to be dealt with successfully, has, hopefully as, as apolitically as possible. The virus doesn't know whether it's infecting a Republican or a Democrat, a woman, a man, or anything. It just... And until we get a better handle on it, we want competent people working on this. And right. I saw the press conference, the president, I thought this was very, very important for people that don't know him. Uh, he was being asked about the inevitability of this. And he said, I don't believe the worst is inevitable. The President Trump is a problem solver. He has been all of his life right. in business. You have, too, as governor of Indiana, you, you – uh, the, the portrayal of you all as incompetent and in over your heads is also political. And I, 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 I want to ask you how you deal with that, how you're reacting to it, because there is public relations to this as well as the substance of what you're dealing with. Uh, you're being hit because you supposedly botched something in Indiana that you didn't botch. No. So – how do you respond to people who are making criticisms like this? Because remember, we everybody that I know wants you to succeed with this because we're talking about the health of the American people and ultimately the world. Well, we're going to stay focused on the American people and on their health and safety. The, the president made it very clear in that press conference. He's made it very clear uh, to our team uh, that, that we're going to bring all the resources of the American people together around this. But we're, he told me. He told me to call Speaker Nancy Pelosi uh, and, and call Senator Chuck Schumer, and I did that. And, and we had very productive conversations. Uh, we're already beginning to work on what they call a supplemental bill. And the president's made it clear that while we submitted 
an initial proposal. We're very open uh, to working with re- Democrats and Republicans in the Congress to make sure we have all the support that we need. What will the money be used for? It's a tendency of Washington well, to throw money at yeah. things and say solution at hand. But how's it, how's it going to be allocated? Well, the most important thing your listeners ought to know is that because of the action the president took last month, the threat remains low. But we're ready for whatever may come. And part of the resource issue in working with the Congress right now is to make sure that our agencies have the funding to be able to address anything that may come. Uh, We're also looking at uh, issues about medical supplies um, and what the president may be able to uh, may decide to exercise authority to make sure that we have additional supplies in the event of a broader outbreak. But make no mistake about it, during my years in the state of Indiana, we actually had two instances of infectious diseases breaking out when I was governor. Number one is Indiana was where the very first MERS case emerged in the country. Fortunately, there were only two. MERS is a devastating infection. Yeah, it was a Middle East respiratory syndrome. We had SARS. We had MERS, which much more lethal than the coronavirus we're talking about today. But I remember when I learned as governor that we had the first MERS case, uh, we went straight to work. We deployed our local health officials. We deployed our health department. Uh, We brought in the CDC. We took every effort working with local law enforcement to find out who that person had been in contact with. And I'm glad to report that person was treated, recovered, uh, and and there was no further infection in the community. A, a year later, we learned in a very small town that there was a outbreak of the HIV/AIDS virus, and it was all being it was all being transmitted through people sharing needles, intravenous drug use. Well, again, we we went straight to work. We deployed health resources in the region, law enforcement thought, sought to deal with it from a law enforcement standpoint. But we engaged the CDC, and they came in and said to us that um, that in this one instance that I ought to declare uh, a state health emergency and for a short period of time allow for making a needle exchange available so that people would, would no longer be sharing needles to transmit. Uh, I, I will tell you, needle exchange was, was illegal in the state of Indiana at the time. I don't support needle exchange as a way of dealing with drug abuse. But as governor, I made the hard call. I said, look, we have a we have a health emergency in the state of Indiana. And so I signed an executive order. We dealt with the issue. Uh, we, we ended the spread of the disease. Everyone received treatment, and the community is completely recovered. And I'm proud of it. The state of Indiana went on to change the law following what I had done. But in both of those instances, the, what I learned, Rush, was the value of, of partnerships when you're dealing with a health issue. I think it might be the main reason why President Trump asked me to do this. Uh, I think by putting me, um, putting me over the, the administration's response to the coronavirus, um, the president wanted to signal the priority that he's placed on this. But he talked to me about my practical experience as a governor. Because a lot of people are aware the CDC is involved, HHS is involved, Homeland Security is involved, and we manage the quarantines. But honestly, what I learned as governor, it's your state health departments, it's your local health care providers that are at the tip of the spear uh, in, in the spread of infectious disease. 
And so as we work with Congress on making resources available, we're going to make just as sure that not just that federal agencies have the resources, but as I, I told several governors today, we're going to make sure that our state and local health care providers have the resources and the support that they're going to need to deal with whatever may come. But we're ready today, and we're going to make sure that we're ready going forward. We are with Vice President Mike Pence for the half hour. We'll take a brief obscene profit break and be back and resume shortly. Don't go anywhere, folks. And welcome back. Rush Limbaugh, the EIB Network from the EIB Southern Command. And we are happily with the Vice President of the United States, Mike Pence, who is running the task force uh, for President Trump on the coronavirus. Two things about this very quickly in our remaining. Pardon me? Thank you. Oh, you're you're welcome. Uh, the whistleblower is a whistleblower asserting that you, the, the administration people, HHS people, were not properly protected when some of the infected right. people arrived. You guys have been really plagued by some whistleblowers. What's the status of this? Well, look, uh, I, I spoke to Secretary of HHS this morning. Uh, we're initiating a full scale investigation into the allegation that our personnel were not provided sufficient protective gear. Look, our, our first priority is to take care of Americans that uh, that may have been impacted by the coronavirus, but right after that is taking care of our health care providers. And so we will get to the bottom of it. I was assured of that uh, today uh, by Secretary Azar. And uh, and, and also, what, there'll be... There'll be I, I got his commitment. I don't, I don't want any retaliation against anybody. We, we need all the facts. What we're going to do in this process, and I'm 36 hours into it, and I have to tell you, just as President Trump said, that I, that I think our team, beginning with the president's decisions last month, I think our team uh, has done a very strong job leaning into this effort of the coronavirus. Um, uh, but, but we're going to follow the facts. We're going to follow the science. Uh, we're we're going we're gonna to tune out uh, the politics and keep reaching out uh, to people across the spectrum. And I have to tell you, my, my conversations with, with many of the officials that I mentioned to you in the Democratic Party, uh, I, I get that sense. This, I think this is a real moment uh, where, where we have an opportunity to really come together and, and work this issue on behalf of the American people, and that's going to continue to be our focus. I got up today doing show prep, and I see this uh, headline leading to a story that uh, you've got a gag order, that the president has put a gag order on, say, Tony Fauci and Dr. Shuket and all the people that were there with you at the press conference, that nobody's allowed to talk about this unless it's cleared through him or you. And it just doesn't sound like... The, I, I know you – that doesn't sound like no. – is that true? You've got a no. gag order on these people? No, it's not. And I was told that Dr. Fauci uh, testified uh, at a uh, briefing in Congress today that there was no gag order, and there is not. What we want to make sure is happening is that with so many different agencies involved that we're providing that information in a consistent and a systematic way. Uh, we're going to give the American people the facts. We're going to follow what the scientific community is recommending uh, on this, and uh, we're going to let the healthcare experts lead. I- I'm bringing back from Africa uh, uh, an extraordinary uh, expert in infectious diseases. She has run uh, our AIDS Africa program over there. She'll be my right arm at the White House for this coronavirus uh, 
response. She's highly respected on both sides of the aisle. But we're going to make sure the American people have all the facts on this. And, and I will tell you, Rush, I, from what I've seen in the first 36 hours, and I'm going to be meeting today with Governor DeSantis and his health officials before I leave Florida. I'm going to be talking to more governors and more members of Congress on the way back, is that I, I, I really do believe that we would not be where we are but for the decisive action that President Trump took in January because of the team that he assembled in the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Now, that just that has us where we are today. And the risk remains low. The risk remains low. But What I does want, that mean, infectious risk spread to people or the seriousness of the disease itself? Uh, the seriousness of the disease, you know the numbers. It's uh, depending on who you talk to, it's a 1% to 2% mortality rate. But the risk of the disease spreading in the United States remains low. But I want your listeners to know we're ready for anything. We're working with everybody. We're going to meet this challenge uh, with President Trump's leadership, uh, with all the full resources of the federal government, and I know with the prayers of millions of Americans. Our hearts go out to the families of those that have suffered infection. Our hearts go out to people around the world who've witnessed loss of life, particularly in China. Um, but here in America, we're going to put the health and safety of America first, and uh, I'm grateful to be able to come on your program to speak to so many people oh, across the country. Here. Thank and you. let me assure you, I'm grateful for their prayers. Thank you. They work, Mr. Vice President. Tell me, trust me, they work. Thank you so much for being with us today, and best of luck as you go forward in this. And thank you again to the Vice President, Mike Pence. Uh, we have known the Vice President was going to be a guest on the program for... A few days, but we had to um, keep it quiet for security reasons, and we're more than happy to do that. Um, But uh, he's such such a um, just a a, a genuine person, nice guy, very serious. Uh, I I just was looking here. I wish I had a chance to run this by him, but um, he's already off to his meeting with uh, with Governor DeSantis. But apparently, the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, was being questioned by a member of Congress, Ted Lieu. Now, Ted Lieu is a Democrat in California, and he's one of the most radical, anti-Trump-hating Democrats in Congress. And he said, look, this is not even a gotcha question. Do you believe the coronavirus is a hoax? And Pompeo said, that is a gotcha moment. It's not useful. Just refuse to totally accept the premise. Now, nobody is saying it's a hoax. They're making it up. They're accusing people of saying that it's a hoax. The, the media, no question, is attempting. Look, when the media says, I'm sorry to drumbeat this, but when the media says this could be an opening for the Democrats, what the hell are they talking? It's a political, that's a political reference. So when you then accuse the media of weaponizing this thing, much as they weaponize Trump-Russia collusion, then somebody comes, oh, so you think it's a hoax. No, nobody said this is a hoax. So it's an attempt. What they were trying to get Pompeo to do was to ridicule the idea it was a hoax so that he could then name names on the Republican side who he was going to accuse of referring this whole thing as a hoax. Nobody thinks it's a hoax. But the people attempting to manipulate this to their political advantage are the Democrats. You know, one of the reasons why the president and his team have no choice. They have to deal with this. 
This is this is one of the things you run for president, you run for governor, uh, you get the emergencies, you get the crises. They have to deal with it, have to fix it. The party out of power looks at that as a disadvantage. Oh my gosh, they the, 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 Trump's in office. He's got the power. He's got the chance to deal with it. If he succeeds, it's bad for us politically. That's how they look at it. But they have to deal with it. The party out of power doesn't really have to deal with it unless they want to find a way to try to benefit from working with the administration. Now, to me, that would be the smart thing to do. If you're the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, I know that there's all kinds of hatred for Trump everywhere you go. Um in some of these Democrat states. But this disease doesn't know Republicans and Democrats. This virus doesn't know liberal from conservative, man from woman, transgender from whatever. And it's in everybody's best interest in government that this thing not become bad. And if if you're an elected official and the federal government has the authority, the power, the money to deal with this, it seems to me make much more sense to partner up with them. Because at the end of the day, Turning this back, making sure it doesn't become what it has become in China, is a win-win for everybody. But then you've got real partisans like Pelosi and Chuck Yu Schumer who do not want to play second fiddle even on a successful, what could be, what would hopefully be a, a successful solution. And not to mention... It's a presidential election year. So it's um, it's ripe. Now, you also it, – it's ripe for discord. Uh, you also heard the vice president, I think, twice and maybe three times, acknowledge the early action by the president as far back as mid to late January in banning flights from China and making sure that people coming into the country from infected places were uh, tested, examined, in some cases quarantined. He made a point of this at least twice. Now, some people might think that that's a little overboard. It's not. Uh, Vice President Pence is extremely loyal. He is a loyal person, he's a loyal soldier, and he's loyal to the team that he's on. But in addition to that, I happen to know that he has a great deal of personal respect for President Trump. From even before he was selected as vice president, he's had it. And he stuck with him through all of the controversies of the campaign. So that's genuine. Uh, Is it decent person. He's just a genuine, nice, decent person. And I think everybody should feel confident that he's uh, running the task force. And I was glad to hear this story that there's no no uh, gag order on these. How can they enforce? If there was a gag order, these people on that task force would be out there complaining about it. You, But you're not going to be able to gag people like Anthony Fauci, who has been the National Institutes for Health and has been one of the most prominent doctors in the study of the HIV virus and the successes that have occurred. You're not going to keep people like that quiet, um, even if you tried. So it, it just it's it, it got to be frustrating to deal with some of the stuff that's reported. But I, I like I told you, you want them to succeed. 
in this. But the thing is that there are, I guess, uh, some who uh, who'd known. No, we were able to clear the vice president. It just took him a couple of days to pass EIB security clearances. People want to know... Uh, was he able just to walk in? No, no, no. We have our own security clearance. They have theirs. We have ours. Uh, Vice President Pence uh, had to undergo an exhaustive security check. So did his 25 Secret Service uh, person detail. Uh, we even have a security procedure for their canine bomb-sniffing dog that went through here. So, no, no, no. We were never at risk. Lady. No, no. Don't anybody think that. Not not at not at all. Uh, let me grab a quick phone call. This is Bob in Coronado, California. I'm glad you waited, sir. Welcome to the EIB Network. Hello. Hi, Rush. Thank you very much. Hey, two uh, quick comments regarding the coronavirus. And this is for me, a physician. Um, and I don't want to be too critical, but uh, from the government standpoint, being involved in medicine, it was really kind of interesting. Number one, that they uh, in the index patient in. California doctors and nurses and respiratory therapists wanted to test the patient for coronavirus. And because of the algorithm-based way the government does things, it took four days. Um, again, I'm not being super critical, but it's a kind of a classic, you know, we'll do, you know, we won't follow what the doctors want to do. Well, no, it's yeah. a valid question about the role of bureaucracies and things like this. Yeah. That's really what you're getting at. I, I, I am, and I, th- you know, it's just part of it. But um, I think you're going to be borne out over the next few days. I've talked to some people who are very involved in the situation uh, in the kind of the Asia end of the testing, and there's going to be some new information that I think is going to come back to basically make your prediction very accurate, and that is specifically. Well, wait, wait. I've predicted a lot. Which prediction are you talking about? That this is going to end at some point. No, that that the disease, that it's over. The disease is somewhat overblown. I think it's going to be more than the common cold. But what they're finding is there's quite a few more cases, um, and this is some uh, information coming out of Hong Kong and Shanghai, that there's many more asymptomatic people that have the disease or have very very mild sim- symptoms. So that basically, I mean, it's hard to do math on the radio, I know. But as that denominator gets bigger and the death rate stays the same, well, the uh, mortality rate becomes much more like the flu. And potentially, it might even be a milder disease than the flu. Well, we, think- you know, we hope that's right. That, the, the thing is that if, if the Chinese situation uh, is what it is, and we don't want that to be replicated here. And we hope that it won't be. Um, for one thing, the Chinese government tries to hide things like this and bury them. And then when they escape, they downplay the severity of it. Uh, that's not going to be possible here, even if there are people inclined to try it. Now, I have here the Johns Hopkins University and Hospital website that is keeping the official tab on the coronavirus, and they update it whenever there's information to add to it, and you can also reload the browser that you use. Uh, And the total confirmed number of cases, as we sit in the last report, was at 1120. Let me, in fact, let me hit reload here. I haven't hit reload. Let me reload, and we've got, uh, still, notes of the last, the last update was 1123 this morning, Eastern Time, 83,867 cases. 
2,867 deaths and 36,000 people who've recovered from it. That number is never talked about. I don't know why, but it's never mentioned. It's still a big gap between 83 and 36. So the the number between 83,000 and 36,000 people still have the the virus and are being treated for it. But it's it's not an insignificant number. 36,000 have have recovered. The vast majority of these numbers are all China. I mean, uh, of the 83,000 cases... 78,000, almost 79,000 in mainland China, 2,300 South Korea. Uh, U.S. is still at 60, despite what you've heard about 4,800 potential cases in California. It's still 60 cases, and a significant portion of those, or of that 60, are people that were on the um, uh, coronavirus princess, the uh, cruise ship there that docked off Yokohama in Japan. And that we flew back and who landed at Travis Air Force Base, which is the area of California where this mysterious case, one person who apparently contracted the disease having not been in contact with anybody who had it. Uh, But still in the U.S., the number is 60 cases, no deaths yet uh, in the U.S. Look, I'm glad you called Bob a quick time out. We'll be back. And continue right after this. Don't go away. Hi, welcome back. Okay, now you heard Vice President Pence three times reference the president's travel ban from China in January. I have some headlines from back then that I want to share with you. Because the media is even now doing stories on Trump allies attacking the media, trying to present. I want you to listen to these headlines. These are some of the headlines from around the time the United States stopped flights to and from China because of the coronavirus and since. From the medical website Stat on January 31st, health experts warn China travel ban will hinder coronavirus response. From Al Jazeera on February 3rd, Trump's expanded travel ban sows fear in communities across the U.S. From the National Interest, February 3rd, why a travel ban will not stop the coronavirus. From the U.K. Observer, February 3rd, how Trump's panicky coronavirus travel ban cost me $4,000 in two hours to save my job. From the U.K. Guardian, February 4th, coronavirus, could the U.S. government's quarantine and travel ban backfire? Boston Globe editorial board, February 17th, Trump's xenophobic travel ban punishes Americans above all. From the Atlantic, February 18th, Trump's nationalistic response to the coronavirus. And from today, via NBC News, civil rights groups condemn Trump's travel ban expansion to six African countries. If Trump had not initiated the travel ban to and from the Chicoms at the first mention of coronavirus, can you imagine what the media would be doing to him today? 
But the moment he announced the travel ban, they all made fun of it. They all called Trump a racist. They all said Trump's a xenophobe. They said it was going to backfire. It wasn't going to help anything. Don't tell me that I'm the one politicizing this. It's like everything else. I get up, I'm minding my own business, and I look at the media attacking people and things that I love and appreciate, and I come here and defend them. And the minute we start defending them, then they, who started it all, accuse us of politicizing stuff. These people are a bunch of sick puppies. Okay, Wanda in Beaver Creek, Ohio. We have time to squeeze you in. Time is tight, but we can get you in there. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Mr. Rush Revere Lumbaugh. God bless you, and I'm praying for you. And I just want to tell you, I'm 63 years old. I did not do well in history. I, my husband ordered your books for our grandchildren. They're not leaving this house. They are wonderful. I can't quit reading them. So... I, I just, it's amazing. We're, we're going to buy another set for them to read. I have eight grandkids. Wait, 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 well, aren't you sweet? That I, I honestly, you know, I, we've we, I've heard this. I've heard from some adults who who um, uh, apparently did not get much of a history education when they were in school, and a lot of the stuff that's in these books is stuff they didn't know. And I'll tell you, that's it's 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 so great to hear that because we love education here, and we love people learning things here. And uh, especially love hearing how much that, that, that you enjoyed and how much it meant to you. Uh, hang on. Your grandkids, uh, we, we have a whole package of stuff we send out to loyal readers of Rush Revere. So don't hang up. Mr. Snurd will get your address. We'll send you a little goodie package of stuff. Uh, audio versions read by me so you can listen to them again rather than have to take time to read them. So don't hang up. Thanks again to Vice President Pence. For giving us a half hour in the final hour today. Hope you have a great weekend. And we'll be right back here Monday. Revved and ready to go again. See you then, folks.